This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. He's got it good! All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith on the day after the night before in America, a day of infamy in Washington yesterday as pro-Trump protesters invade the U.S. Congress. Four people died yesterday, including one woman shot and killed inside the Capitol building. You just heard some sound of that uh, just now. U.S. lawmakers scrambled to take cover as the mob invaded Congress, getting right onto the Senate floor, invading offices including the office of Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Meanwhile, continuing developments overnight. The Congress has confirmed the election of Joe Biden. Trump has now acknowledged that he will leave the Lighthouse the White House. We have full coverage and analysis for you on this uh, story today. We start by going live to Washington, D.C., ground zero of yesterday's mayhem. My guest is Dr. Keith Martin. He's a former MP from British Columbia. He now lives and works in Washington, D.C. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Dr. Martin, thanks for coming on. Thanks very much, Mike. Okay, I appreciate it a lot. Everyone knew there would be a huge crowd of Trump supporters in Washington yesterday. The president had encouraged his supporters to show up. He said it would be wild. Turns out it was wild. What went through your mind as, as we watched what unfolded yesterday in Congress? Well, you could see it build up the day before, Mike, uh, when I took a walk around, people with Trump um, uh, signs and, um, and uh, clothes wearing body armor. They were preparing for violence. And what you saw was just an incredible, uh, disgusting assault on democracy, an assault on freedom, and an assault on this nation that is absolutely unprecedented. Uh, tragically, this was predicted. President Trump, uh, as you said, signaled it for, for quite a long time. And uh, those folks that are, were there uh, yesterday have gone away, but they're not for the, temp, for the time being, but they're not going to go away forever. Uh, because that problem that underlies why they were there in the first place still remains. Okay, your office, I know, is right in the heart of the action down there. How close are you to uh, the congressional buildings there? About, uh, about two kilometers from, the, from Congress, but about less than a kilometer, about a kilometer from the White House. I had literally turn around the corner from my office 30 meters, and I'm staring right at the White House. And that's Black Lives Matter Plaza is right in front of it. So that's been relatively quiet. I took a walk this morning. A lot of the people who came to to uh, invade Capitol Hill yesterday uh, are uh, on the streets, but they're mostly going home, and it's quiet. So nothing much is happening now. Um, but it was it was shocking, disturbing, worrying. And I can tell you from my American friends here, they were disgusted. They were scared. In fact, yeah. they're scared for their democracy, scared for their country, and they don't know what's going to happen next. Let me play this for you, Keith. This is uh, Donald Trump yesterday at the Save America rally before the mayhem. And you can hear Trump egging on the crowd here. Uh, to have a listen to this, this is Trump speaking yesterday to the crowd. 
We will never give up. We will never concede. It doesn't happen. You don't concede when there's theft involved. Our country has had enough. We will not take it anymore. And that's what this is all about. And to use a favorite term that all of you people really came up with, we will stop the steal. Stop the steal. Stop the steal. All right, Dr. Martin, how much blame does Trump himself have to shoulder for what happened yesterday in your mind? Well, he's fully to blame. He's got blood on his hands. And he is not solely responsible, but largely responsible for continuing to pour fuel on this fire that was started a long time ago and inciting Americans to basically invade Capitol Hill. While he didn't say that explicitly, he certainly had egged them on and egged them on for quite a while. I can tell you, Mike, because I've, I usually, when Mr. Trump's supporters congregate here, as they have, uh, particularly after he lost the election, I go down actually to try to listen to understand them. Yeah. And what I have witnessed is just a progressive increase in anger and expressions of violence against the United States and against parts of the United States, not only Congress, but also people like yourself in the media against uh, civic leaders, against anybody they think is not one of them. And what's scary, there was a, a poll that was actually done after the tragedy of yesterday, and 42% of Republicans thought it was fine for those folks to actually invade Capitol Hill in an egregious act of domestic terrorism. That's got to tell you a lot. Speaking to Keith Martin, he's in Washington, D.C., where he's based now. He's a former Canadian MP from British Columbia. America is obviously divided. Do you think there's a problem with extremism in America? Like when you saw the Trump crowd uh, starting to assemble uh, the last couple of days, you mentioned that, that some of them looked like they were ready for action, wearing body armor. Is, what is the problem? Could you talk about the problem with extremist thought in America today? So right-wing extremist groups, domestic terrorism groups that have been actually labeled as such by Homeland Security, have been growing. What we saw yesterday is, is nothing new. And since the 1970s, it's gradually been growing. But when President Obama became president, that really incited them. And so what has happened is that those right-wing groups have increased in, right-wing extremist groups have increased in number and also increased in size. And the violent actions that they've been taking in the United States have actually grown in number and in size. And what has happened is that the authorities, the domestic uh, authorities here, have not taken that seriously. They kind of shove it away as being some kind of a, a sidebar, marginal, um, marginal groups. But in fact, it's much, much larger. The evidence is much, much larger than, than what they are actually um, uh, considering. So this is a, this is a domestic terrorism uh, network in the United States not necessarily coordinated, but it's a clear and present threat to the security of this country. And the United States needs to start taking that very seriously and not simply shove it aside as something just as a sidebar distraction, which it obviously is not. What does this mean for the Republican Party in the United States, do you think? Trump has had a lot of enablers and supporters within the Republican establishment. We just look down the list, whether it's Ted Cruz or, or Lindsey Graham or Marco Rubio. Josh Hawley, I mean, even Mitch, Mitch McConnell, some of them were recanting a bit yesterday after, after this mayhem, but does a lot of the blame lie at the feet of establishment Republican figures who sided with Trump through a lot of this? They have, and, and you know, the United States needs two strong 
parties with different views so they can actually start to battle about ideas, but they have to agree at least on the truth, which they're not doing. And it, it's interesting you mentioned that because even after the mayhem of yesterday, the tragedy of yesterday, there were more than 125 Republicans who actually continued to try to side with the lies that President Trump has been talking about that the election was not free and fair, that it was allegedly, according to President Trump, stolen, which is a complete pack of nonsense. But those Republicans continue to do that. Sure, some recanted, but if you look at the numbers, they repeatedly uh, try to overturn the will of the people, the votes of the people, over and over again in Pennsylvania and in other states. Um, so I, I, that's absolutely shocking. So the Republican Party needs to come to ground in terms of what they want to be rather than uh, pandering to right-wing groups and continuing to feed them disinformation that they know is not true. They know that, that, uh, that the election was free and fair, but they're manipulating people's fears and anxieties to actually further their own political fate, putting their political uh, uh, interests ahead of the Constitution and ahead of the United States' best interests. Keith Martin, thank you for coming on today. Thanks so much, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. On yesterday's show, we talked about the lengthening list of politicians and senior public officials caught taking COVID vacays, going against public health advisories, against non-essential travel. Well, here we go again. Overnight, the list getting longer. West Vancouver Councillor Peter Lambert. The latest B.C. politician to acknowledge, yep, he traveled outside of Canada over the holidays. He went to Big Sur, California to visit with family members. Also yesterday, we learned that the head of the public health department at UBC had traveled outside of the country. Really, Dr. Peter Berman went to Hawaii over the holidays despite these restrictions and advisories not to travel internationally he is now apologizing and says he regrets that decision who will be the next on the list it seems to be getting new names added every day let's talk about this now with my guest jason tetro he is the host of the super awesome science show i'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show jason hi hello there thanks a lot for coming on how important is it for senior public officials like politicians uh, bureaucrats, senior officials, to to be uh, leading by example here and, and not traveling outside of the country. Your thoughts? Oh, I, I think it's absolutely true that uh, if you happen to be representing uh, a section of the public, then if you are asking that same public to perform some kind of act, whether it be a restriction or uh, compelling them to do something for their own good, that you should be doing the same thing. I mean, yeah. I can understand that it may not necessarily be in the mindset of the individual, but usually, you know, if you are either elected or put into a position that is uh, representative of a larger population, I think that kind of weighs on you. I've talked to professors who basically only have a couple of graduate students and they're doing a better job of, you know, making sure that they're adhering to rules than some of the public officials that we've been talking about. Yeah, let's get to have a listen to this here, Jason. Here is some uh, Global News went down to the UBC campus yesterday to talk to students and faculty after the revelation that the head of the public health department there had gone to Hawaii on a Christmas vacation. And here's, a, here's what people were saying. 
As a faculty member, I think we all need a break, but you know, Hawaii. Yeah. I think we gotta. <laughs> I think we gotta follow the rules. <laughs> I think it's like kind of hypocritical because they're enforcing all these like safety measurements, but then they're disobeying them themselves. Everybody should be putting in their effort, but especially if the people that we're supposed to be listening to aren't putting in the effort. Yes. It sends kind of a bad message just to like the general population. Yeah, kind of hitting the hypocrisy angle there a lot. That seems to be the most common a reaction, Jason. Yeah, and I mean, what this shows us is that you have some individuals who are either um, very much aware of the fact that Canada cannot absolutely ban travel. It's, a, right. it's in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Yeah. And so they figure that since no one can ban you from going out and doing some kind of vacation, that you essentially have the right to do so. Right. They're forgetting about optics. And I think this is a very important thing. Whether we're talking about wearing a mask whether we're talking about getting a vaccine or whether we're talking about staying at home as opposed to traveling to a really nice destination, you really have to start swallowing some of these things and acting upon it as yourself to, to, to essentially lead by that example. Unfortunately, we're not seeing that. And instead, we're seeing people saying, well, you know, it's not uh, banned. So I had every right. right under the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms to do so. And it's not it's not turning out as well as they had hoped. Yeah. Some of the people who've been caught here are straight up apologizing and saying, I made a terrible mistake. I shouldn't have done it. And others, though, are trying to kind of justify what they did, pointing mm -hmm. out that, as you just said, they didn't break any laws. And, you know, nobody did anything illegal here. And the city councilor from the West Vancouver that was identified yesterday was saying, like, look, yes, I went to Big Sur, California on, on a vacation, family vacation, but I took precautions. I, I got a COVID test, a negative COVID test before I left. I self I isolated mm -hmm. myself while I was in California. I wore a mask when I was in public. I tried to do everything I could to make sure I didn't get sick or pass it on to anybody else. I think what he's forgetting there is that when you're a public official, I mean, I mean, that's, I guess maybe that would be reasonable for an average member of the public to say something like that if they make a decision to travel. But when you're a decision maker in government, at any level of government, I think you got to set a better example. Yeah, absolutely. If you represent a larger population than yourself or maybe your family, you really have no. to take that into consideration. Now, thankfully, I should note that the Canadian government has now put something in place that's going to reduce the chances of anybody making that error again. And that is that whole making sure that before you even board a, fl a flight, you have to prove that you're negative within 72 hours of flying. Um, that's going to be incredibly difficult for a lot of people to be able to... Um, in, in essentially yep. get that test. We're already hearing about some examples. And as a result of that, I think we're going to be seeing um, more people staying at home, uh, not because of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms or because of the Quarantine Act or because they're representing people, but because of simple good old-fashioned logistics. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about the, this new rule that's been brought in that requires all passengers that before you arrive in Canada by air, uh, you would have to have a negative COVID test taken within 72 hours of your scheduled departure. Now, as you mentioned, Jason, some people are complaining about this, including some people who are in the United States already and saying, oh, man, now I've got to get a negative COVID test before I can come home. This is a terrible inconvenience for me. Uh, the travel industry also has concerns around the new rules. Have a listen to this. This is Mike McNanny. He is the National Airlines Council of Canada president. If a passenger arrives and they have not been able to have the test, uh, or they perhaps they're unaware of the requirements for the test, 
uh, we will be required to deny boarding. Uh, what our concern, of course, is going to be for those people that uh, we are going to have to strand uh, in these in these countries abroad. Okay, that's the president of the National Airlines Council of Canada in conversation with our own Simi Sarah there. What do you think about the complaints from people about this new rule, Jason? Uh, I mean, don't take this the wrong way, but um, tough. because honestly the whole point was that we were trying to get people not to go and travel by asking them kindly and they just went ahead and did it anyway so the fact is we cannot contravene the charter of rights and freedoms however we do have something called the quarantine act and the quarantine act can actually make us or give us the power to be able to prevent anybody from coming onto our soil, including Canadian citizens, if you are infected with something we don't like. And so the fact of the matter is that if people want to get into the technical legalities of it, that's exactly what the government has done. You may not like it, but in order for you to understand why this is happening, all you have to do is take a look at that list of people who travel to Hawaii, especially those who represent larger populations. All right, welcome back. As we continue talking about the new travel restrictions, you must produce a negative COVID test for international arrivals to Canada by air. My my guest is Jason Tetro. Let's go right to your phone calls. Rob in Vancouver. Hi, Rob. Yeah, good morning. Uh, my, question, my question is, is that um, I know of two people, nice people. They're not trying to really be bad or anything like that, but they have to go down to Seattle. So they're going to fly down, but what they're going to do is rent a car and come back to Vancouver in order to um, get across the border. Will they have to show uh, 72 hours in advance of test? Jason. Uh, at this point, uh, if you actually look at the uh, regulations, um, you have to show a proof of negative laboratory test to an airline before you get on board. Right. So right at this moment, they're focusing on air travel. So if you are going to fly down there, get into a car and come back, you're not going to have to show any kind of uh, test result. Now that may change if start people, <laughs> now that you've sort of let it out of the bag. Uh, but at the moment, uh, they should be okay uh, not to get a test and come back into Canada. Yeah, I mean, what's to stop people if, they're, if they don't want to get the test? Uh, they could just fly to a, a border city, Seattle, rent a car, drive over the border, and then you don't have to produce the negative test. Correct? Yeah. I mean, maybe it could be expanded. And and that's, yeah. I mean, right now we're mainly focusing on airlines because that has been uh, people, you know, you can't drive here from Hawaii. Uh, so as a result of that, I think airlines are going to be the first. But uh, if, if it does turn out that we're seeing, you know, all of a sudden a massive spike in car trips from the from America into Canada, even though, yeah. you know, the borders close, then we'll probably start seeing that negative test requirement as well for uh, road travel. Let's go to Frank on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Frank. Hello, Mike. Hi. Yeah, I was just wondering, you know, if you go to countries like people have been in countries, Europe, whatever, Middle East, and there's no facilities there for testing coming back. If you've been on vacation, whatever, um, what's going to happen? Are these testing facilities going to be set up in airports for people? Some, pe- some people, Jason, are already saying it's tough to get a COVID test in some places. Your thoughts? 
Yeah, well, we actually are starting to see this now that uh, if you pay a certain amount, you'll be able to get a COVID test uh, before you board. Um, and this may be rapid enough to be able to do that same day. Uh, we're not there yet with all uh, different airports. It's still sort of in pilot stages, but yeah. that is definitely something we're going to be looking at. And I do believe that the Canadian Airlines may also be investigating this. So when you essentially... Uh, get your ticket, you may actually have the opportunity of booking uh, a COVID test prior to all of a sudden coming home. Right. They're going to try and make it as easy as possible. Keep calling me on this. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Steve in Coquitlam. Hi, Steve. Uh, hi, Mike. Uh, listen, these, these uh, restrictions, they're not going to work. I can't see it. You're in a tube. You're in a plane, you're in a tube. The second somebody takes off their mask to take a drink, it only takes one, just one, and that's it. Uh, you, know, uh, the, you know, everybody's, people can get infected that quickly. I mean, if everybody mm. did what they were supposed to do a long time ago, you know, this would be cleared up. But no, everybody's got to break rules like crazy and restrictions. Sorry, no, they're not going to work. They're not going to work. Okay, well, let's see. Let's see what Jason thinks of that. Jason, do you think this would be an effective program? Well, I mean, if you can prevent someone who has come into co contact or exposure to a virus from getting on a plane, that's definitely going to help. Uh, but mm. in terms of being on a plane. Thankfully, since the original SARS came around, uh, we've had major modifications to air, air, airplanes and, and the way that flights and, and air circulation is done so that the risk really does come down to just a few people, um, sort of uh, a couple rows behind you and in front of you and to your sides. And even then, if you use the airflow from the little thing on top of you uh, to be able to clear out the airspace around you, that minimizes it as well. So there are ways that you can help to reduce the chances. But at the end of the day, the restrictions are just there to try and make sure nobody that has exposure to this virus gets on a plane. Well, right. And I, I mean, everybody else on the plane will have got a negative COVID test. And Correct? that's really more or less what we're trying to do at this point yeah. is if you're not going to listen to the, the requested restrictions, then we're going to invoke a rule that you cannot get around to make sure that yeah. you are negative when you get on that plane. Let's go to Chris on the open line in North Van. Hi, Chris. Um, one of these things that this strikes me is the politicians and others, public officials that are having these questionable decisions. How did they arrive at this stuff? Okay, what does it do for other decision-making uh, matters that they're involved in? Are there questions of ethics here which have a much bigger picture than just this issue? Is there something else we need to be worried about? Jason, your thoughts? Well, we have seen this, uh, and, and I don't have experience in the specifics of what you've just said, so I'm going to yeah. give you a, a bit of, a, of, a, of an idea from a different perspective, which is the vaccination. And the idea that if you are a person who, um, you know, continually uh, defends uh, the anti-vaccine or vaccine hesitation, then as a public official, you may end up actually getting more people behind you and then we start losing out on people who are going to get the vaccine and then we don't get the numbers that are necessary to achieve, uh, you know, the elimination threshold in that. So if we see the same thing from the perspective of a uh, travel 
with respect to COVID or any kind of virus, then people may just simply say, you know what, that public official didn't do what we, they were told. So why should I do this? I'm here right. in Alberta. We're seeing a lot of that right now. And that's a yeah. huge concern. So, you know, if you are a public official, make sure you realize that you're not just talking or doing for yourself. You're doing for the people that you represent. And, and, and I'm, I'm hoping that that will help. Back to the phone lines. Bernie and Mission. Hi. Good morning, Mike. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, just like to say, first off, I agree 100% with uh, your guest. If you're outside the country because of unnecessary or non-essential travel and you have to get a test to get back in now, tough darts. Yeah. But secondly, uh, I'd like to comment on your first caller there. I thought that was a typical example of uh, the kind of thing Adrian Dix and Dr. Henry are talking about, loopholes, end arounds. If I fly down and drive back, I don't have to worry about whether or not I'm bringing something back. And I'm absolutely disgusted by that attitude. Yeah, well, there you go. Yeah, the loopholers, uh, they're out there. And I think this is a, a pretty obvious loophole, which I imagine officials are going to keep a close eye on. We just got one minute left. Let's try and squeeze in one more call. Gary in East Van. Hi, Gary. Got to go quick, yeah, I'd though. Like to, good morning. I'd like to echo the sentiments of the, one of the last callers. Yeah. If these selfish, insane, inept people that get into politics think that they're above everybody else and they can do what they want, and then all they have to do is say they're sorry, I think that... They shouldn't be in any kind of position of power making any kind of decisions for anybody. Thanks for the call, Jason. We got 30 seconds. They're, they're saying exactly how I feel, how yeah. um, so many other people feel. Um, it's really great to hear them uh, voicing their opinions because I'm just one voice, you're just one voice. But the more that we hear this from the public, the more our public officials are going to realize you just probably right. shouldn't be making these decisions. Jason, it's always great to have you on. Thanks for coming on. It was a pleasure. All right, welcome back to the show as we continue talking about the mayhem in Washington yesterday. Let's talk about the move against Trump now by some social media companies. Facebook chief executive Mark Zuckerberg said this morning the social media giant is banning Donald Trump indefinitely. It marks a dramatic escalation here in conflict uh, between Facebook and the White House here. This, of course, after the mob stormed the U.S. Capitol yesterday. Let's talk about this now with my guest, Jesse Miller. He's the founder of Mediated Reality. He's a social media expert. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hiya, Jesse. Thank you for having me, Mike. Hey, thanks a lot for coming on. What do you think about Zuckerberg stepping in here and banning Trump? I think it's a little bit too late when it comes to using the terms of service of your platform as, a, as an argument for uh, disbarring him from communication on the platform for the next two weeks. But realistically, I think there, this is a watershed moment that social media companies have to look at how they treat politicians' voice uh, in, this, in their spaces because they can't keep uh, advocating for uh, avenues of free speech or free expression while still looking at the end, end results of conspiracy beliefs and these, uh, these disinformation campaigns. It's going to be really interesting to see how uh, not only Facebook and Instagram, but uh, Twitter and Google uh, with yeah. YouTube respond to this. Yeah, Twitter yesterday blocked Trump for, what, 12 hours? Um, do you think Twitter has been the main platform for Trump? What do you think happens there? What do you, what's your read there on Twitter? Well, 
Well, realistically, 12 hours is just kind of a we're, we're putting you on hold because things are out of control. Uh, I, I think that Twitter, obviously, as his go to platform, uh, was probably the one that really kind of gave, gave him a bit of a jolt saying, oh, my goodness, look, they've, they've decided to make me quiet. Uh, but then he also has the actual POTUS account like he could have kept going. They've tried to uh, stifle uh, Trump, the personality more so than the president's office. So when we think about Twitter taking this approach, I think with the next uh, uh, approach to how they really do address social media, it will be whether government accounts are actually allowed to be used to propagate violence. Right. The social media platforms have been used extensively by Trump to get his message out, including yesterday. At one point, he posted a video message to protesters as they were invading uh, Congress. This uh, video was taken down at one point by Twitter. But I want to play a bit of it for you, Jesse, and get your take on it. You're going to hear Trump here uh, repeat the, the false claims about the election being stolen. But he also talks about people people should go home and stop the violence. But he also kind of praises them as well. Have a listen to this. This is the video that Trump put out yesterday. I know your pain. I know you're hurt. We had an election that was stolen from us. It was a landslide election, and everyone knows it, especially the other side. But you have to go home now. We have to have peace. We have to have law and order. We have to respect our great people in law and order. We don't want anybody hurt. It's a very tough period of time. There's never been a time like this where such a thing happened where they could take it away from all of us, from me, from you, from our country. This was a fraudulent election, but we can't play into the hands of these people. We have to have peace. So go home. We love you. You're very special. You've seen what happens. You see the way others are treated that are so bad and so evil. I know how you feel. But go home and go home in peace. Okay, it was not a landslide election win for Trump. It was not a fraudulent election. Joe Biden won the election. That was certified by Congress yesterday. That was like, you know, at the same time he's, he's telling people, Jesse, to go home. He's also saying, we love you. We think you're special. These are people who invaded this mob that invaded the Congress, the U.S. Capitol. So, I mean, this is an example. Would you say it's an example of Trump kind of inciting? Yeah, partially. I mean, it's disinformation, but I, I would say that the speeches that he and Don Jr. did at the gathering beforehand, where he basically uh, told people to char- you know, go down Pennsylvania Avenue and go to the Capitol, he yeah. was inciting aspects of violence. And the reality of it is, is that he could have walked into that crowd and the crowd would have just done whatever he wanted. Uh, people would say, well, you know, president shouldn't be able to do that. He had the Capitol Police uh, gas uh, uh, protesters who were peacefully protesting months ago and then stood outside of a church with a Bible in his hand. He's demonstrated before he can control uh, what he wants. And the narrative he wanted was basically people going into the Capitol. Yeah, no, I think he wanted to see some mayhem there yesterday. We're getting lots of calls on the buzz line about how the, so, the role of social media and what happened yesterday. Have a listen to this, Jesse. This is a caller on our buzz line here. found it really interesting that Twitter, uh, Facebook, and Instagram all decided to uh, suspend Trump's accounts now. And I think this is a good thing because um, it's going to maybe lessen a chance of a repeat of what happened yesterday happening on, on inauguration day and quite frankly i'm quite fearful what's going to happen on january 20th 
Okay, Jesse, it's interesting that these big social media companies are taking this action now, but there's only 13 days left in the Trump presidency. Um, is, this a, is this a difficult thing for social media companies? I mean, where do they draw the line and what's acceptable and what's not acceptable on their platforms? Well, that's an ongoing conversation, whether it be yeah. hate speech, whether it be uh, propagating misinformation. But he's he's an orchestrator of disinformation, and that's really important. There is a significant difference. He has an end purpose. Now, the hard part there is that there's the traditional value of the office of the presidency, right? What what should all people have access to when the president's speaking? The thing is, it's different from the pulpit where there's a traditional media approach where everybody goes into uh, the six o'clock hour and they hear from the president, and that's traditionally what is what is used. But here is a president who's favored Twitter, and he recognizes that he doesn't have an audience that really favors him in traditional media, unless it's Fox or OANN. But here, when we see him using Twitter, he's really getting to his audience who are radicalized, who are believing this conspiracy pieces. So when we see this small percentage of people who say this is the Republican Party, we heard Don John Jr. yesterday say the Republican Party isn't what it used to be. It's Donald Trump's Republican Party, and that's the, the bigger concern. How can he use social media to radicalize? individuals yeah my guest is jesse miller from uh, mediated reality jesse it's it's interesting that the mayhem that we saw yesterday if you paid close attention you could have seen this coming i mean trump at one point last year in december was encouraging his supporters january 6th make sure you're in washington it's going to be wild he said he posted that on twitter and a lot of the planning for the protesters who showed up yesterday and then invaded congress a lot of that planning happened really in the open online, on social media, on Facebook, on other other forums uh, that support Donald Trump. Uh, how much of a role do you think social media played in the planning of what we saw yesterday? Oh, I mean, that, that was the biggest part. And the thing is, is that there's so many different avenues. We saw the far extreme kind of live broadcast themes on, on Twitch, on Discord servers. But the reality of it is that the majority of people who showed up were most likely absorbing invitations to go to Washington on Twitter, on Instagram and Facebook. So realistically here, social media does play a huge role. Interestingly enough, and I mean, it's unfortunate that a person did die yesterday in the, in the sense of a shooting. But when we see people storming the Capitol, you can dive into their social media to see where they were potentially radicalized. And the woman, the veteran who was who was shot and killed, she had years of far right QAnon extremist uh, subscriptions where she yeah. daily talked about storming the Capitol. So this is something that could have been prevented if they put the barricades further back. Yeah, I mean, she had been uh, on Twitter and on other platforms saying that she expected she thought maybe this was the final storm. That was uh, that Trump at one point had cryptically referred to Trump at one point had said this is the calm before the storm. And this had been picked up by QAnon and other another conspiracy theorists think something big was coming. And a lot of the people who showed up yesterday invaded Congress thought this was the day. This was the storm that Trump was talking about, including that woman who was tragically shot yesterday. Yeah, and QAnon, this is a big part of it. Now, most listeners probably don't really get what's going on with this, but it is yeah. a far-right radicalization. And so when you see merchandise, you see people sharing these beliefs, these Q drops on Facebook, yeah. um, there are so many levels of concern, but whether it be 5G or uh, the pandemic or all these things that kind of go into this idea of the storm, uh, there are these catalyst moments. And this was one yesterday, and now she's becoming a martyr in that community. Fascinating stuff. Jesse, thanks for coming on today. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. All right, welcome back to the show. As we continue talking about yesterday's astonishing events uh, south of the border in Washington, D.C., pro-Trump protesters invading the U.S. Congress. Of course, it all came 
on the same day that Congress was set to certify the election of Democrat Joe Biden to replace Trump as president 13 days from now. Trump supporters did not like it. It turned violent in the U.S. Capitol yesterday. Four people died yesterday in Washington, D.C., including one woman who was shot by police inside the Capitol building itself. Now, as the events were taking place in Washington, we saw other protests uh, spring up in other cities around uh, the United States and in Canada, too. There was a small protest in downtown Vancouver yesterday. Also yesterday, in Olympia, Washington, the state capital uh, south of the border, there was a demonstration at the state legislature, and then uh, some people breached the gates of the nearby governor's mansion. Have a listen to this. Okay, some of the sounds yesterday in Olympia, Washington, the state capitol. Now, let's check in now with reporter Shauna Sowersby. She's a freelance reporter with the Daily Beast and other outlets uh, and a photographer. I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Hi, Shauna. Hi, Mike. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for coming on. For, for some of our listeners who are unfamiliar with your state capital there, Olympia, Washington, is the state legislature, is it close by to the, the governor's official residence there? It is. It's a really short walk. Um, I mean, it maybe takes you two minutes to walk over there to be actually aligned with the front gates. So, right. so not how did, at all. How did all this go down yesterday? Because it started with a, a protest rally at, at the legislature first, right? Correct. Um, yeah. yeah, so it actually started with, uh, it was supposed to start at noon, but it actually began a little bit earlier. Um, and it was, for the most part, just how a lot of the rallies have been in the past, where it's just a lot of speakers. Um, but then they started getting a little bit more inflammatory. Um, you know, then they started getting this idea going that they're going to go to the governor's mansion. And this gets the crowd kind of excited. And uh, so by the end of all the speakers, um, they just marched us over there. And, I mean, within, you know, three minutes, they were already pulling the gates, banging at the gates, chanting, um, threatening the Washington State Patrol that was right there nearby as well. Yeah, it's amazing. I followed your coverage on Twitter yesterday. You posted a lot of really amazing video there of the crowd sort of swarming in front of the mansion, the official residence of Washington State Governor Jay Inslee. What did they want? Did they want to talk to the governor? What were they trying to do there? You know, honestly, I'm not quite certain either. Um, yeah. What I gather, it was that they were hoping to have some sort of interaction with him. Um, but as most people know, um, the governor is, you know, often not at that mansion, especially during um, times whenever legislature legislature's not in session. Um, was he there know, yesterday? He, residence. Uh, he was not, no. He was in a safe location, according to what we heard. Okay, speaking to reporter Shauna Sowersby from the Daily Beast about the protest outside the Washington governor's mansion yesterday. I mean, this is a gated mansion, right? Like they've got gates around it, a secure perimeter around the around the residence? Correct. Yep. And then there's a, uh, a sentry uh, booth right there near the the gate where they allow visitors to drive their cars in or they open up the gate for people to walk in normally. But yes, it's all How gated. Are- 
they were able to get through the gate at one point, though, right? Yes, they were. Um, just a lot of banging on it. I'm not really sure exactly how it happened. Uh, at one point, a state trooper walked up to the gate, and that's when they began banging on it even more, and then they were able to get in through a side gate to go inside. But I didn't exactly see how the gate came open. Okay, taking a look at some of the videos that you shot yesterday, Shauna, of the protesters. It looks like they got right up to the front door here of of the governor's uh, residence. What happened then? They did, yes. Um, And then, let's see, I want to say there was already one officer waiting inside the doorway by the time they'd gotten up there. Um, They were getting into the cars that were out front, but they weren't doing any damage. Um, Just kind of seeing what was going on with these vehicles that were parked out front. um, You know, and they were shouting and yelling at this one officer. And then finally they brought in, um, I don't know, probably another 10 Washington State Patrol and uh, Thurston County Sheriff's uh, Department officers. And then they stood and just got yelled at by the crowd for, you know, however long um, and before ultimately giving them the ultimatum that they could leave or be arrested. We've seen a lot of uh, media and reporters targeted at these events. Some of the pictures we saw yesterday in Washington, we saw reporters' equipment and cameras being broken up and damaged. Was there any kind of, uh, you know, you're a reporter there on the scene. Did you hear any, was there any harassment of the media down there yesterday? Um. I have been going to these things um, since they really started uh, flaring up again in the last few months. And I would say that every time I go to one of these events, I end up having somebody harass me in some sort of way. Yesterday, uh, a gentleman wearing a, um, uh, you know, some sort of weapon came up to me and started getting in my face about which news organization I was with uh, for the day. And, um, you know, that made me very nervous in the moment. It's, like, very hard to talk to somebody who's threatening, you know, making threatening gestures at you while they're wearing a gun, (laughs) you know, to kind of spit it all out. But um, fortunately, you know, he wasn't as harassing as some of them have been. But I got pretty lucky yesterday compared to a lot of reporters who were out there. Sean, I'm glad you got out of there safe. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. All right, welcome back to the program. Following yesterday's riot at the U.S. Capitol, there are a lot of people talking now about the possibility of removing Donald Trump from the White House even sooner than January 20th. That is supposed to be Inauguration Day for Joe Biden. But could we see things sped up? Our show contributor, John Jang, has more now regarding the 25th Amendment. John. Hey, good morning, Mike. We are still digesting the images we saw yesterday, and most of us have nothing but questions here this morning. How did things really get to this point? How does the United States of America move forward? And what will the final days of Donald Trump's presidency actually look like? Well, to provide some of those answers, we are now joined by Professor Lisa Mannheim, Charleston Associate Professor of Law at the University of Washington's School of Law. And Professor, from a legal perspective... What was your reaction to the events that unfolded yesterday? So when it comes to the most important legal implications of what happened yesterday, um, fortunately, uh, there's nothing new to report. Um, Congress, as expected, confirmed Joe Biden's victory. um, And even if Congress had not, which of course it would have, but even if Congress had not, um, it is very clear under American law that President Trump's term ends on January 20th at noon Eastern time. 
no matter what. So none of that changed, um, even though we saw uh, those scenes unfold in Washington, D.C. Now, if we step aside from that broader question, um, then what we saw was really shocking. Um, we saw a breakdown of the law. We saw a breakdown of security. We saw a breakdown of decorum. Um, and all of those are very troubling in terms of the message that they are sending um, across the country and across the world. One of the big things people are talking about today is that of course, there's less than two weeks left in Donald Trump's presidency, but there's now a belief that things should be expedited. And specifically, people are talking about the 25th Amendment. Could you clarify what that amendment is and how that process is supposed to get started, if it's going to be at all? Um, absolutely. Uh, so first, there are 12 days and a little over uh 23 hours left in President Trump's term. Not that I'm counting, um, but, uh, you know, sort of uh, joking aside, um, the reason why people are thinking about this is because uh, President Trump's conduct in the last uh, few weeks and months, frankly, and certainly his conduct yesterday, um, calls into question uh, his fitness for office. And um, there are at least two mechanisms that the U.S. Constitution allows to remove a president before the end of his term. The first mechanism is impeachment and removal. Um, we saw that earlier in President Trump's term. Term, we saw impeachment, but we didn't see the House vote to, uh, sorry, the Senate vote to remove. There is, however, another mechanism um, via the 25th Amendment. And what that mechanism does is it allows a relatively small group of executive branch officials to temporarily strip the president of power. More specifically, um, what it uh, allows, it, it allows um, the vice president, who is Michael Pence, um, as well as uh, it, there's some ambiguity over exactly who would be covered, but the understanding is generally that um, of the, in a sense, the 15 most important um, uh, heads of the executive branch, this is, for example, the head of the Department of Justice, the 15 most important can come together, and if a majority of the, those people, along with the vice president, agree that the president uh, lacks the ability to continue in office, then the president is temporarily stripped of his powers. On that note, we did see reports coming out yesterday that when the D.C. National Guard was eventually activated, it was done through Vice President Mike Pence and not the Commander-in-Chief and the President of the United States himself. Would that be an example of the 25th Amendment in action, or is this a one-off, irregular act that had to be taken so that law and order could be brought back in place? So there is going to have to be a whole lot of investigation and um, uh, scrutiny um, aimed toward what happened in the last 24 hours and, frankly, before that as well. Um, and to that end, uh, it is important to understand exactly what happened with the National Guard. Um, if uh, the vice president was the one um, uh, issuing uh, uh, orders to the National Guard, um, then that is irregular. And again, it's something that needs to be investigated. Um, what you're describing, I would say, uh, is more along the lines of evidence that we need to invoke the 25th Amendment, um, rather than sort of an under-the-table invocation of that amendment. The, in, the 25th Amendment is a formal process um, that formally strips the power from the president. So again, what you're, what you're saying, I think, is an indication that this is an appropriate step to take. I don't know that anyone will take the step, but it's an indication that it would be an appropriate step. Um, but what happened, if what you say is true, um, that would be irregular. Yeah. There's a lot of people who watched what happened yesterday and expressed their belief that this was an attack on democracy, an attack on freedom and constitutional law. 
I wanted to get your response to that because I will add that when the U.S. Capitol was brought back under control, Congress was able to resume their session. And we also saw that when the situation was originally starting to get out of hand, the Electoral College votes were taken away very quickly, very safely, before they could actually be compromised. Sure. Um, so I guess I would say uh, two, two answers to that question. When it comes to um, in the short term, am I confident that the system will hold? Um, the answer is yes. I find it troubling that uh, a person who is um, uh, clearly struggling in really fundamental ways, who's the president, um, is still in power and can uh, uh, theoretically at least exercise certain powers between now and the 20th. Um, however, I am confident that on the 20th, Joe Biden will be inaugurated. Um, and to that end, you know, you, you made an allusion to uh, people um, sort of grabbing the, the ballots um, as they left the chambers. Just to be clear, there are other copies of those same ballots um, that exist, and, and not in sort of a, an informal way. Um, these are uh, copies that are distributed pursuant to the Constitution and to the laws. So, for example, the copies of the, these uh, ballots go to the chief judge in each district where the electoral college vote took place. Um, they also go to the uh, National Archives. Um, they, they don't only sit there in the chamber. So even if for some reason those ballots uh, physically had been taken, that would not change the outcome in any way at all. Um, so short term, I have confidence that the system will hold. Um, longer term, that's where we have a lot of work to do because those scenes that we all saw, um, those send a message to people that this sort of conduct um, is in the realm of possibility, that it's something that um, won't necessarily be, uh, be stopped, won't necessarily, there won't necessarily be um, sort of immediate consequences to doing it. Um, those are messages that we really need to push back on because those go to the rule of law itself and whether um, the government is going to tolerate this sort of uh, really fundamental um, seditious lawlessness or not. She is Professor Lisa Mannheim, Charlestown Associate Professor of Law at the University of Washington School of Law. Professor, really appreciate you giving us some time and some breakdowns on exactly what happened yesterday. Yeah, thank you.